I want to bring a message to you entitled, Stand Together on Biblical Sexual Morality. So we'll be looking at a passage in 1 Corinthians, but I want to tell you why we're talking about this today. Because sometimes the world will say, that's all you Christians want to talk about. Well, it's in the Bible, first of all. And if it comes up enough in the Bible, you're going to hear it in the church. But secondly, the more the world presses things upon us that are sinful, the more we are going to defend the truth and speak of what the Scripture teaches. So just in the nature of how it works, when the world attacks even Christianity, then we are going to use the Bible as our defense. God's Word is our defense. Spurgeon said, let the lion out of the cage and it will defend itself. Well, that's the word of God. Now today, along with hundreds, maybe thousands of pastors across the U.S. and in Canada, I'm taking a stand by preaching on biblical sexual morality. We want to see what the Bible has to say on this issue once again. And we here at the church stand on what the Bible teaches. We speak the truth of Scripture about any perversion regarding gender or sexuality or immorality of any kind. And over the years, if you've been here or go back and listen to the sermons, you'll see that we focus on all the sins that mention in the Bible when they come up and the expository series of preaching through Scripture. What's recently happened just this last week is a bill in Canada that passed, Bill C-4, passed the House and the Senate there without any opposition. Not one single person opposed it or dissented in their vote. Any member of the conservative party even did not fight against this. It received royal assent from the Queen on December 8th, which means it will come into law after January the 8th, which was last week. This law, just in the preamble of the bill, says... Heterosexuality, the belief that heterosexuality, cisgender, gender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions is a myth. So in other words, to say that there's just a heterosexuality or cisgender identity or you have to be conformed to whatever birth gender you're given, that they say, is a myth. They go on to state, a practice of conversion therapy is to be considered prohibited. Here's how they define conversion therapy. A practice, treatment, or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual. In other words, the normal God-given sexuality that you're given. They go on to state in the bill, to change a person's gender identity to cisgender. That's just a code name for male and female. To change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth. To repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior. To repress a person's non-cisgender gender identity. And repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth. All of that, they say, is conversion therapy. And that according to this bill, is going to be deemed illegal. In other words, people will be fined for it. People will be persecuted for their beliefs that God made man and woman, man and woman. Sometimes you hear conversion therapy and you think, oh, that's where people are being forced against their will to change. Well, there might be psychologists and such that do that. But in the church, when somebody comes in with a sin problem, what else are we going to do other than show them the scriptures and tell them they need to change according to what God's word says? Now, we know that's by the power of the spirit that God changes hearts, that God changes lives. But this bill in Canada would basically do away with biblical counseling and evangelism. Because it would be, and it is now, as of today, even considered illegal to go out there and tell anyone they need to change from a sinful lifestyle to a biblical lifestyle and that Christ gives them the power to do that. Now you might say, well, that's Canada. 
They pass bills. Europe passes things. Australia has one very similar. Not in America, right? Well, there's similar bills already passed in the U.S., California, New York, New Jersey, and Nevada. I'm reminded even of the San Antonio City Council a few years ago. Floated out there, they didn't get very far, but they floated it out there that all businesses, including churches, would be fined if they did not allow a person who identified with a certain gender to go into their preferred restroom. Now, it died very quickly, but that shows you how close to home this is getting. Today, we want to make clear what the Bible says on this subject. Where does the Bible stand? Because that's where we want to stand. We don't want to draw lines in the sand that aren't biblical. We want to base our beliefs on preferences. No, we want to base our beliefs on the Word of God. And the Bible has something to say about this. These sins are not new. These sins that are now outlawed to try to get people to change from a sinful life to a godly life. This is not new. These sins have been around a long time. The Bible has a lot to say on it. And the church is not a place where we can remain quiet on issues like this. The church, Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.15, he says, In case I am delayed, Timothy, I write to you. Here's the whole purpose of 1 Timothy, and you can include 2 Timothy and Titus too. He says, I write to you so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. So in 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, Paul's going to say all these things about how to do church. Read scripture, preach, pray, sing. All these things. Elders, deacons, who's qualified. But here's what he says in this verse right after that. He says, In the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Did you hear that? Pillar and support. What is the church? Paul says, look, it's the household of God. It's the church of the living God, which is the pillar and support of the truth. Some don't think the church's main purpose is being a place of truth. They see it more as a social club or an entertainment venue. But at its root, at its core, the church is to prop up the truth so that the world can hear it. Yes, believers will hear it and be edified too. But the church supports the truth is what he's saying. Not that we're saying we give assent to the Bible, therefore it's true. No, the Bible's true and we just hold it up and support its truth by saying here it is. Hear this. Hear the word of God, the pillar and support of the truth. Every member of the church should want to be a pillar and support of the truth. In fact, my calling as a teaching pastor here is to preach the truth. And in doing that, it will confront sin. It will call all men to repentance and obedience to the gospel. The good news that a soul can be converted to Christ and saved from the eternal wrath of God. That's the truth. And so we're going to look at this passage. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. And let's hear what God has to say here about sins of immorality and also some good news on salvation. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Amen. What a blessing that last verse is. But before we get to the good news, we have to look at the bad news. First, let's focus in on verses 9 and 10, the truth about the Bible's teaching on sexual immorality. That's the first point that I want you to see here, the truth about the Bible's teaching on sexual immorality. You know, the Bible has a lot to say on these issues, and we need to go there first. Not to the world, and ask them to define the terms. And then inject those back into Scripture. What does Scripture say? Let's interpret it rightly. And open up this information so that we can see the truth. And think about it rightly. When we give people the gospel. We've got to tell them the bad news. That they're sinners. That we were once sinners too. 
We're going to tell them that. We have no problem saying that if we're saved, that we were just in the same situation they were. But we've got to tell them the truth about sin. You can't be saved unless you first realize you're lost. Think about it. A person can't be saved unless they admit they're a sinner and repent of their sins. Yes, God, from his point, is doing all the work in their hearts so that they can have faith and repent. But we have to tell people the truth of the gospel. You're a sinner, and you must repent of that sin and trust in Christ. So there's the bad news first. And that's what Paul is doing here in verse 9. He's, he's already, in 1 Corinthians, told them some of their sinful actions that they're doing in the church. He's reminded them that the true Wisdom comes from God, not the world. He's reminded them that the natural man doesn't even care about the things of God. So we shouldn't follow what the world thinks, but what God tells us to do. And there's a lot of problems in the Corinthian church. There's a mess there. They've, they've got all kinds of miraculous gifts that they're misusing. There's immorality among them. There's a church discipline issue that they fail to deal with. And now he comes to this passage right here, and he wants to make it very, very clear in verse 9. Do you not know? And when the Bible says that, pay attention. Do you not know? That's a way of saying, do you have two brain cells to put together and consider what God has already said? Do you not understand? And he tells us what we need to understand, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's very clear. The unrighteous, those who act contrary to what is right. God has set up what is right. He has set it up according to his righteousness. Even the natural world works according to God's righteousness. Yes, it's been corrupted by sin. Yes, some things break down. They're not working according to the way they did in the garden and Adam and Eve at creation because of the fall. But God has set it up in the world what is right. And it's clear when we're against that, we're doing what is wrong, what is unrighteous. When we sin against what is right, we sin against God. Sometimes people get into a debate. Well, there are those out there who don't know the Bible. They don't know the law of God. That's true, but they still have a sense of right and wrong because God's put it in everyone's heart. We know what is right and we know what is wrong. And the Bible says those who commit sin... Those who have unrighteousness in their life will not be in the kingdom of God. That's what the verse says. If you are living an unrighteous life, you simply will not inherit the kingdom of God. The problem in the church in Corinth is that they're going back to their old ways of sin. And they're sort of shrugging their shoulders and saying it's no big deal. You know, we're going to heaven someday. So it's no big deal. We can live the way that we want. And Paul says, don't you know? Don't you know if you live an unrighteous life, you will not inherit the kingdom of God? In other words, you were never saved to begin with. Don't do that. Now, the kingdom of God is, is the coming kingdom. When Christ comes back, he's going to reign for a thousand years. And it's what we might call the first stage of the eternal blessed life with Christ forever. It's the thing that he's often teaching on in Scripture. Jesus teaches on in the Gospels. It's the thing that many of us are thinking about when Christ comes back and the kingdom. And Paul says, if you live an unrighteous life, you're not even going to be there. In other words, we might say today, you're not going to be in heaven. You're not saved. He's trying to get their attention. Sin is serious. Sin is serious. Don't mess around with this. Because if you continue to live like this, you will not be in the kingdom. No one that follows these sins will be there. This is not a side issue. This is a serious thing. This is not something that occasionally Christians might discuss. No, this comes down to the gospel. What is sin? And what is salvation? And who is going to be in heaven? Not as if we go along and check people's forehead and say, you're going, you're not, you're going, you're not. That's up to God. But when we tell people the gospel, we need to be very clear on what sin is, what salvation is, who Christ is. Those are important things. Serious issues. This is Holy Scripture. It's a matter of salvation. So he's going to give 10 lifestyles that are sinful. 10 practices that are sinful. And it represents pretty much the sins of the unsaved world. We don't want to go through this list and say, well, that doesn't really describe me. None of those 10. 
probably some of them will hit pretty close on all of us, at least in our former life and even some temptations we still have today. But it's not meant to be a catalog of every single sin. It's just 10 general categories that are major sinful lifestyles that the unbeliever continues in. Now the first five deal with sexual immorality. He groups all of these together. And then after that goes into other sinful practices. But look how he starts the list here. Here's the truth about the Bible's teaching on sexual immorality. Do not be deceived. Before he even lists any of the ten, don't be deceived. In other words, they have been deceived. They must have, at least some of them. And deceived here means to be misled, to go astray, to deceive, to wander around aimlessly. Don't wander off track, he says, on these issues. This is clear-cut issue in the Bible. Don't be deceived. Don't be misled. Don't go off track. Don't think you can just continue in this lifestyle and somehow end up in heaven someday. It's not possible. Don't let the world, especially other Christians even, deceive you about these matters. Some in the Corinthian church were deceived about this. That's why he put it in here. Why it comes up over and over in 1 Corinthians. But a Christian is, is really deceived if he thinks his life does not have to match his doctrine. It's deceiving today to tell people, you prayed a prayer, you got baptized, now go and live like you want, forget about it, and God will forgive all your sins that you commit after that. You got your punch card, you got your stamp, and go on and live like you want. It never says that in Scripture. It says we'll struggle. It says we come to Christ for help and for prayer, and he'll, he'll take our prayers before the throne of grace. It says that God always provides for us when we are tempted. There's always a way out. But it also makes very clear a true believer does not live in a continuous sinful life. 1 John, the book of James, most of Paul's letters address that very subject. So don't be deceived. And now he gives the list here, and he's very clear on what they are. He starts off with neither fornicators. According to our translation, it says fornicators. Really, it's broader than just fornication. The, the Greek word here is pornoi. Those who engage in sexual immorality, whether that's a man or woman. We might just say a sexual immoral person here that's not married. One who commits the sin of porneia. Our English word pornography derives from the Greek word porneia and graphe which means immoral pictures of sexual sin. This includes any kind. This word porneia includes any kind of sexual immorality. So today, we could give examples of this word like pornography, premarital sex, bestiality, incest, pedophilia. Sins that our culture once agreed that it was a sin. But today, they try to prop it up. Some even say it's a good thing. It's freeing. It lets you live according to the way God made you, they say. But Paul says those who make it a practice, those who make this their lifestyle of following in this sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's not worried about public opinion because let me tell you, these sins were very prevalent in Paul's day as well. Maybe they didn't have the internet. Maybe they didn't have video cameras and pictures and such. They had drawings on walls though. They had paintings. They had prostitutes down every street and back corner. And they had the rest of these sins that we're going to list all over their culture. And he says, look, those who continue in this kind of immorality or any type of sexual sin outside the marriage bed will not inherit the kingdom of God. Then he gives another one. It's kind of interesting. The next one, idolaters. Usually we see idolaters. We think of pagan worship bowing down to idols. And that is basically what it is at its core. It's Bowing down to a statue or drawing or some kind of figure. Worshipping it as a false god. It's pagan. It's idol worship. The interesting thing is, why is it in between all these other sexual sins? Because often in the practice of idolatry, there was sexual sin involved. There were temple prostitutes and priests and priestesses and orgies. And all of these things that would happen... As a part of their worship. In other words, if you went and you, you did these things, you were going to be blessed. Your harvest would be greater. You would have more income received from your business 
if he went and practiced in these things at the pagan temple. So Paul says, idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of God. Then he says, nor adulterers, a person who commits adultery. In other words, this word means those who have sex with someone who's not their spouse. He says, look, this is one of those sinful lifestyles that will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Sin has great consequences. I mean, adultery can rip apart families, destroy marriages, children. If you live a life of that, he says, if you don't repent of that, if you're not converted, saved, then you will not be in the kingdom of heaven as an adulterer. Well, he continues on, and we're getting really more and more against the culture here. I mean, adultery is pretty much now supported by the average American. But the next one is even more so. The NASB says, nor effeminate. Effeminate. We need to explain what this word means. Uh, Effeminate is the Greek word here, malakoi. And it literally just means soft. Those who are soft. Those who are, we might say, feminine. Men who act like women, in other words. Men who are feminine. The only other place that this is found is in Luke 7 and verse 25. Jesus says, What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? He's talking about John the Baptist. What was the point of going out to see him? Did you want to see a man dressed in soft, malakoi here? Soft clothing? Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. Maybe a hint at Herod here. If you want to see somebody that's dressed in fine clothing, like women might fuss over, then go to the palaces. Don't come out and hear the prophets preaching. Don't come out and hear my preaching even. He's saying, look, we're not here wearing soft clothing. Well, Paul like other ancient writers, uses this term, malakoi, metaphorically. And it's basically saying these are men who are in a passive relationship in their same-sex couple. So the one who acts more feminine. In other words, the Bible's so precise that it doesn't just say a homosexual couple, but both parts of it. The one who is the more feminine, and the next word will be the one who is the more masculine. Men who fill the sexual role of the female in homosexual activity. And by the way, this would include today any gender change, transsexual, bisexual, any kind of attempt to change one's gender. Paul says, look, these will not inherit the kingdom of God. Then he goes on. He hits the other side of the relationship here, the homosexuals, he says. This refers to the active male partner in a homosexual intercourse in contrast with the word we just looked at. Now the interesting thing here is this Greek word is not found before Paul's time. Arsenikoites. It's a compound word. And Paul often does this. He'll throw two words together. And we do see Greek writers after the New Testament using this word. Arsen is male and koitai or koite is bed. So he's making this very clear. He's saying males who take other males to bed. You have the feminine side of the homosexual relationship and the masculine side. So even in their attempt to thwart the way that God has designed it, there's still this idea that there has to be one more masculine and one more feminine. He says, these will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now there's a lot of debate around this word. Today, the more liberal scholarship is trying to say, This word actually isn't what we think of today as homosexuality. They'll say because most of these relationships were a grown man abusing a younger boy in Roman times. This is really not what we think. It is just this idea that we're not to abuse children sexually. The problem is it's very clear in the scriptures, not only in this passage, but in other places. Paul is talking about adults. Of course, pederasty is sinful. Of course, that's evil. But here he's talking about men, arson, taking men to bed. doesn't matter the recent scholarship that's tried to change this. It doesn't matter all these people who now go out and preach that this is not true homosexuality that we see today. Paul knew what it looked like. He saw it. He saw 
men going down the street together. He knew this was out there. So did God, of course. You know, sometimes people say, well, Jesus didn't understand what was going to happen in the 20th and 21st century. Jesus is God. Of course he understood. Why do you think God put things there? Because they're common to man, these sins are, and they're going to be there every century before Christ and after Christ. All the way back to Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible and all the way up to today. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is the Bible's teaching on sexual immorality. It just summed up in five words here. A list of the first five here. This is a message the world must hear. It's got to hear that these things are wrong and sinful. It's not a minor issue. We can't just set it aside and say, well, you know, we're going to focus on the positive. Well, we are. I'm going to get there in the last verse here. We've got to give them the bad news. We can't tuck away the truth, refuse to discuss it. I'm not suggesting that we make this our main focus. You know, it's not the year of telling people who can get into the kingdom and not. But we can say, look, the gospel is about truth. And the truth is Christ came to save sinners. And if you're a sinner and you don't come to Christ, you will not be saved. It's really clear. But the world is confused. The world is confused. A couple years ago, the uh, Southern Baptist Convention president, he was the president up until the last election. So he served a couple of years there. J.D. Greer, teaching on Romans 1, the president of the largest denomination in the world, said this about Romans 1. He's quoting now his female friend, Jen Wilkin. He said, Jen Wilkin says we should whisper about what the Bible whispers about and shout about what the Bible shouts about. The Bible appears more to whisper on sexual sin compared to its shouts about materialism and religious pride. What he's saying there is the sins that the Bible calls out are materialism, you know, because that's an issue in America today. We desire more things. And pride, religious pride, Phariseeism, legalism. But it whispers on sexual immorality. Now this is picked up, really plagiarized by the current SBC president, who said word for word the same thing as J.D. Greer, but didn't attribute it to J.D. Greer. He said, the Bible whispers on sexual sin. And his wife posted on social media that Ed Litton, the president of the SBC, had changed his view on homosexuality when he preached this sermon. Largest Protestant denomination in the world. Conservative. And we know there's a lot of Christians, true Christians in the SBC, but here are the leaders moving in that direction. Read the passage again. Just look at some of the words. You will not inherit the kingdom of God if you follow this. Don't you know that? Don't be deceived. Now, do you think Paul's whispering in that passage? Or do you think he is warning them because he loves them and he wants them to know the truth? I can imagine him getting really worked up as he's writing the whole Corinthian letter. Read it from beginning to end and you'll feel that. Second Corinthians is similar too. Paul is worked up about the sin in the church. I don't think the Bible is whispering here. It's shouting, turn from your sin. Turn from your sin. That's what Jesus went out and proclaimed. And they hated him for it. Turn from your sin. Repent. In fact, that's what the prophets did in the Old Testament. They hated them for that as well. He's not whispering. Leviticus 18.22, Mosaic Law says, You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Now, there's different sins listed in the Old Testament. When the Old Testament really want to get your attention to something that angers God, it's an abomination is what it says. Go over to Romans 1, since I brought that up. And it will be there in a few weeks. So if you're visiting, make sure you come back. And we'll work through this in a little more detail throughout the second half of Romans 1. Let me just read to you Romans 1.26 through the end of the chapter here. This is not a whisper. This is Paul trying to teach the Romans about these issues of sin and where they started and how it's actually God's judgment on mankind to let these sins go and run rampant. Romans 1, verse uh, 26, for this reason, God gave them. In other words, they've, they've turned away from God. They've worshipped the creature. They've worshipped themselves today. 
For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. He's talking about these desires that are sinful. For their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. He's talking about lesbian relationships. And in the same way, also the men abandon the natural function of the woman and burn in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. In other words, the sin just keeps on going from one to the next. They turned from God. They worshipped the things instead of the one who created all things. So God gave them over to this sinful desire, and they fulfilled that desire. They committed these sinful acts, and then he turned them over further to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. They're not even right according to nature. And being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. And now he's just listing all the different sins of the unsaved world without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, even unbelievers understand the difference between right and wrong. Even someone who's never picked up a Bible knows right from wrong. That those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. See, the problem here is not just that people are out there sinning, but it's that others are giving hearty approval to them. Doesn't that describe our country today? Our society today? They're giving hearty approval. Now, some circles, it's actually seen as a huge blessing, they call it. A good thing. You're rewarded, in other words, for following the desires of your heart. This is not a whisper. This is a shout to say, these are major sins that humanity commits, and you need to know about them so you can call them out and proclaim the truth. The truth that the Bible speaks of. Well, let's look at the rest of these lists. I'll go a little quicker uh, through them. But there's five more listed in verse 10. These are non-sexual sinful lifestyles that will not inherit the kingdom of God. This list of sins is still generally accepted by the world as wrong. So the first five, the world is starting to approve and starting to even pass laws to protect and encourage. These last five, most people still realize they're wrong. Because nobody wants thieves. That's the first one. Nobody wants thieves to come and take their things. Thieves are those who steal. They take what is not their own. Those who illegally take other people's things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Nor the covetous. You don't actually have to even take the things if you just desire to have somebody else's things. If you're a greedy person. If you have an increasing desire for more and more, that's covetous. It was in the Ten Commandments. This is where I think, even if we don't fit some of these other sins, we still struggle with this idea of being covetous. Every unbeliever does, and some believers, many believers still do. Nor drunkards. Those who drink to the level of being drunk, intoxicated. The Bible is clear. Drunkenness is a sin. And it must not characterize the Christian life. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation or rebellion or a wild lifestyle. But be filled with the Spirit. A Christian is to live by the Spirit. There are many things we can do to let the Spirit work through us more and more. We can read our Bibles. We can pray. We can belong to a body of believers in the church that help us on this journey. But if you're filling yourself with wine, if you're getting drunk, you're not being led by the Spirit. You're being led by the alcohol is the idea. Really, your desires, your passions. He says, nor revilers. A person who abuses with their words. Really, a a reviler is a verbal abuser. Someone who slanders. Those who run people down with their words. They blaspheme others with their words. A railer. One who taunts and insults others. It includes the idea of verbally intimidating and threatening another with harm. He says, slanderers and violent people like this will not receive the kingdom of God. 
Now, he mentions this and a few others back in 1 Corinthians 5. Go back to 1 Corinthians 5, 11. And this is how serious it is. Again, not a whisper. It's so serious that Paul's going to tell them, don't associate with people who live like this. 1 Corinthians 5, 11. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. That's a key phrase there, so-called brother. Somebody says they're a Christian, but there's really no evidence that they are. They're a so-called brother. If he is an immoral person, so we've looked at the, that's the fornicator later, uh, a covetous person, we've looked at that, an idolater, we've looked at that, and here's a reviler, those who slander, go around insulting others, or a drunkard, or a swindler. So all of these that we just read in 5.11 are also over in 6, 9, and 10. For he goes on to say, we are to have no association for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. In other words, fine, the world's going to do what the world is going to do. We need to tell them the truth. We need to tell them about Christ. We need to evangelize them. But we can't let this kind of sin get into the church. Don't associate with them. Do church discipline, in other words, and tell them they're no longer part of the body if they're not going to repent. Well, that is pretty much the whole list. There's one more. Swindlers is the last one. This is another interesting Greek word. It's difficult, I think, to translate it into English, but it means rapacious like a ravenous wolf. Only use one other place, Matthew 7, 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. That's the only other place this Greek word is used. So now we have this idea of swindlers here. A swindler, use deception to deprive someone of money or possessions. Like an army that comes to and rapes and pillages and takes whatever they want. And so in a sense, that's a swindler on the... Uh, in the business world, somebody who swindles you out of your money. But really anything, some translations say robbery, any time where somebody is trying to take something by force. The idea that this is someone who just desires to take everything they can from other people. Now here's the list of ten. And he goes on to say none of these, once more he reminds us, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. So that's the bad news. That's where we have to tell people that they are, if they fit one of these, and most will. That's the truth about immorality, and specifically that list of sexual immorality. That's what we have to tell people. This is a sin. It doesn't mean you have to be rude. It doesn't mean you have to try to upset them. But we can't set aside the Bible. We simply can't. And you'll know when you're in that situation that you need to go to Scripture, that you need to look up some of these passages, that you need to talk to somebody. Sometimes they won't listen. But we must stand on the truth when it comes to sexual immorality. Well, let's look at the good news. Second point of this passage, the truth about the Bible's teaching on conversion. Now, we know the world doesn't like what I just told you about 9 and 10, or at least those first five. But the world doesn't like this either. The truth about the Bible's teaching on conversion. Conversion means that there's been a change. You've been converted. You were following your own desires and your own sin. You were going your own direction, the world's direction, your heart's direction. And to be converted means turn completely around and now you're following Christ. You've been converted. You've been changed. You've been given a new life. Yeah, those ten major sins describe sinful humanity as a whole. But the question really is, how can anyone be saved? Because we all fit somewhere in that list of sins. And other lists of sins in the Bible. How can anyone be saved? Well, look at verse 11. There is great hope, because as sinful as those Corinthians were, he says, such were some of you. God's already saved them. There are people in that church that God has pulled out of those sinful lifestyles that once lived in those sins, but not anymore. That's your past life, Paul says. That's your past life. There are many today, many of us in this room, who once lived in those sins before God changed us, before God saved us. 
We were chasing our own desires, chasing our own passions of the heart. We didn't care about God. And then God saves us. And we can say, such were some of you. In the past tense. We've got to be clear. Yes, we still sin. But we're not living that constant sinful lifestyle that we once did. If you're truly in Christ. And now look how he describes this past that they once lived in. He's going to use three verbs to describe a converted person. And they're all in the past tense. The life that the unbeliever lived is no longer characterizing them. Very sharp contrast here. The way he puts together the structure in the original language. It's very sharp contrast compared to what's come before it. Of course, this is the good news, isn't it? Such were some of us. This is good news. Yeah, there's a lot of bad news and there's a lot to talk about with the sin in those first two verses. But look at the good news now. And it's all because of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Because sin is heavy. It presses us down. It rests heavy upon our shoulders. And Jesus says, come to me, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. Gentle and lowly. There's a book that was just recently written about that concept. Jesus says, come to me. I'm gentle. I'm humble. I'm lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. There's no other way to get rid of these sins other than coming to Christ. The world has a lot to say about these sins. They'll say, run as hard as you can into sin. Do what you want. Please yourself. Christ says, no, come to me. Come to me. And I will give you rest. And because of that, Paul can now say, such were some of you. And he gives now a short list of three things that have occurred. You were washed. But you were washed. You were cleansed. You were purified. You were regenerated. You were born again. Free from the power of sin. The power of Satan. The work of the Holy Spirit now creates a new life in the person who's been saved. And this person now, he repents. He comes to believe in Christ. He's been born again. He's regenerated. That's what it means to be washed, to be cleansed, to no longer have this shame and guilt upon us. Paul opens this up a bit more in Titus 3. And in Titus 3, 5, he says, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, We didn't earn our salvation. We didn't do good deeds to get it. But here's how it happened. According to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. What does washing mean? It means that the Spirit is in you and cleanses you and regenerates you and renews you. You're a new person in Christ. You've been born again. What a blessing. I remember when I was doing some jail ministry in California, uh, up in Castaic, the L.A. County jails. And we would take the gospel to those folks in the jail, those men. And some of them would just be so amazed that all the sins they had committed could actually have forgiveness. That they could be washed. And I remember one guy saying, you mean I can be forgiven of all my sins? All of them? I said, yes, of course you can. Trust in Christ. It's a hard thing to believe, isn't it? That all that we've done in our life could just be wiped away by one event of Christ dying on the cross. If you truly understand your sin, you understand how amazing that is. It continues, Paul does, and says, but you were sanctified. Sanctified just means made holy. It doesn't mean you're perfect when you're saved. It doesn't mean that you'll never have these sin struggles that you used to have before you were saved. What it means is, positionally, you've been declared holy. You stand in the right position with God that you are holy because of Christ. You've still got to progressively work towards more and more sanctification through the power of the Spirit. But as far as God is concerned, you're positionally holy. That's the only way you can have a relationship with Him, because of Christ. He's still got work to do in us. But this is good news, Paul says. You were sanctified. You've already been declared holy. Now in other places, he'll say, get busy becoming more and more holy through this progression of growth and godliness. 
Also now he says, but you were justified. You were declared righteous. We looked at this last week in the sermon from Romans. You're declared righteous. Your sin was taken away. All these sinful practices that you did that that were characterized by that list of 10 things, those were taken away and Christ's righteousness was imputed to us. He takes away our sin. We get his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's all in the past, he said. You've already had these things happen. In other words, the implication here is don't live in those ways anymore. Sure, the devil's going to tempt you with those things. He knows what you used to love as an unbeliever. Sure, he's going to dangle the lure in front of you. Paul's saying, no, that's who you used to be. Things have changed now. You're righteous. You're sanctified. You're washed. Don't do that. And all of this has happened in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all happened because of Christ. Remember what he did for you. And, and the Spirit of God who did these things inside your heart. That was you in the past. Don't go back there. Run from sin. Run from sexual immorality. If you need help with it, then then come and get biblical counseling. Turn from your sin. Don't live like that anymore. Well, we need to stand together on the truth of Scripture. We need to stand together on the Bible's teaching on sexual immorality. And we knew this when we planted the church about six years ago. We made sure we had a statement in place so any new members could read what our beliefs were. And any outside eyes who were looking to wonder what we believed or governments that maybe wanted to talk about rental facilities for marriage and all of those things that have been going around in the laws in different states, they could see clearly what we believe. So we put together the elder statement on marriage, divorce, remarriage, and sexuality. This was right before the Supreme Court case that came out, um, the Obergefell Supreme Court case. So we were really blessed to basically borrow this from Grace Community Church in L.A. because they'd put in all the effort and they've got judges and lawyers on their elder board and they'd put this document together. And so we made it part of our beliefs here as well. I mean, they're all, all these are from the scripture, but it's nice to have a clear statement saying here's where we stand. So I want to read to you the part of the statement that pertains to our topic today. We teach that any form of sexual immorality, such as adultery, fornication, homosexuality, bisexual conduct, bestiality, incest, pedophilia, pornography, any attempt to change one's sex or disagreement with one's biological sex is sinful and offensive to God. We teach that homosexuality in particular is subject to God's wrath of abandonment, is a matter of choice, and not inherited status, and epitomizes man's ungrateful rebellion against God. That's Romans 1. We're going to cover that in the next few weeks in our sermon series on Romans. We teach that every person must be afforded compassion, love, kindness, respect, and dignity. Hateful and harassing behavior or attitudes directed toward any individual are to be repudiated and are not in accord with Scripture or the doctrines of the church. Just because we're proclaiming the truth that's in the Bible doesn't mean we wish somebody harm. And we should not as Christians take action against people physically or even with our words. We don't hate homosexuals. We don't hate people who live an immoral lifestyle. We love them enough to tell them the truth. Continuing, um, we teach that the faithful proclamation of the scripture, including the call to repentance, does not constitute hate speech. To call somebody to repentance is not hate speech or hateful and harassing behavior, but is instead a fundamental part of the church's loving mission to the world. This is love. Paul said, speak the truth in love. And that's what we have to do. We have no other choice. Notice the last paragraph here. We teach that God offers redemption and forgiveness to all who confess and forsake their sin, including sexual sin. Seeking his mercy and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. We teach that his forgiveness is total and complete. And that God imputes the full righteousness of Christ to the believing sinner. We teach that the forgiving sinner has been cleansed from the guilt of sin. Set apart unto God and made holy and justified before him. We teach that any man or woman who has received that forgiveness is in Christ. 
and is a new creation. That comes right out of the passage we just looked at. Yes, these things are sinful. Yes, we need to speak the truth. But there is forgiveness. There is salvation granted to sinners. Of all that list of ten that we read. I bet if we took a a survey, which we won't of course. But if we did, we would find people in almost every one of those. If not all ten of them. But we've been saved. We've been washed. We've been justified. And praise God that we have. Let's speak truth to the world. Let's stand firm upon the truth of Scripture. Let's stand with our brothers and sisters in Christ and other states, other nations, other countries around the world who are being persecuted for these truths. Let's pray for them. And let's never move one inch from the Bible. You know, one of my favorite preachers, Steve Lawson, he says, I'm not just dogmatic, I'm bulldogmatic. And that's the way we got to be about Scripture. Never hurting other people, but telling them the truth. And if that hurts their heart, then so be it. But at least we've told them the truth in love. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. And it makes it very clear what we are to believe on this. It gives us the line we are to draw in the sand. It helps us to stand. Let us be a church that proclaims this truth that always sets it up high, points people to the truth of your word, calls them to Christ. We want to be a pillar and support of the truth. Help us to be that here. Help us to love the unbeliever so much we're willing to tell them the truth. And we're willing to encourage them, to call them to repentance and call them to Christ. Lord, and I pray, if anyone here is struggling with these old sins that that still pull at their heart, that they would seek you first. They would come to you in prayer and and seek help from the leaders in this church, of the counselors in this church. Lord, there's no reason believers ought to live like this. You've given us this power and help us to go forward living godly lives that are pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.